So I interview a lot of students, prospective students, and I would say the majority of them are in their early 20s. And the ones that end up not committing, one of the main reasons they'll say to me is, well, you know, I'm 25, I, I don't know if I have the, the time to commit two, three years to train. I'll be 28. You know, all my friends, they're, they're doing things right now. I just, no, I can't do it. And they'll try to carve out a career without training. And then you got someone like Gene Pope, today's guest. Gene is a alum of the Maggie Flanagan studio. He was a former student of mine and Maggie's. He didn't hit the classroom until he was almost 60 years old. Now we're going to talk about his life and everything that led up to him getting into that classroom at that age and everything that he has accomplished since getting out of school. We're going to talk about making movies. His films, The King of Knives, came out in 2020, and he just did another full-length feature, The Queen of Knives, which comes out this fall. We're going to talk about that and why age doesn't fucking matter. So put the phone back in your pocket. Creating Behavior starts now. My fellow daydreamers, age. I tell you, our relationship to it, the way we think about it and talk about it, really changes over time. You know, when I was 22, 23, you know, you sit and you look out ahead at your life and you think, fuck, man, in 40 years, I'll only be 60. Man, I've got so much life to live. And it just seems so far away and down the road. Everything's possible for you. And you want to get going. You know, you want to just... Shit's got to happen. It's got to happen now. And every passing year in those 20s, you just get a little more angsty. You get a little bit more frustrated that things might not be happening at the pace you want them to. And now at 53, I sit there and go, my God, in 30 years, I'll be in a fucking nursing home. (laughs) You know, I'll be in my 80s, for fuck's sake. So... Like, I'm grappling with just knowing that I'm in that third chapter of life, you know? Like, just starting the third chapter is what I would say. But when you're in your 20s, man, you just want shit to happen immediately. And it's the ones that know, you know what? I'm going to take some time. I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to study. I'll train. I have patience. It's all going to pay off. Those are the ones that I think, you know, set themselves up. But, man, when I was 22, fuck, it just couldn't happen fast enough. It's like you expect to be a movie star, successful, and it should just have a, you know, a snap of a finger, and uh, it all happens for you. But then you realize that's not true. So that's why, you know, Gene is just a real source of inspiration for me and has been since I first met him back at the studio when he joined the two-year program. And here's this guy in his early 60s in a classroom with people a third of his age. 
But I'll tell you, the man approached it with such childlike curiosity and willingness and fascination and hard work and dedication and, you know, bringing five decades of life experience into the work. And what he has been doing since getting out of school is phenomenal. He not only creates work for himself, but he has been creating work and opportunity for so many other people. In 2020, he released a full-length feature film. It's called King of Knives. It's about this dysfunctional family. I mean, which family isn't? But the relationships between husband and wife and children, middle age and midlife crisis. And it's a good, a good family film. And it's done very, very, very well. You can actually go to kingofknivesthemovie.com and just get a real sense of what this film's about. You can stream it on Amazon. So my suggestion is before you get into this interview, watch King of Knives. You can watch it on Apple as well. I think it'll just add a little bit more appreciation for this conversation. And we're going to talk about his second major full-length feature film. It's The Queen of Knives. It focuses on the same family, but it is not a sequel. It does stand alone. It's just excellently done. And we're going to just talk about what do you got to do to fucking make a movie? And what he's learned along the way, his path over the many decades that led him into the classroom, what he's learned, the mistakes, the successes. And it's just a really great conversation. So at the top, I really just asked him what it was like walking into a classroom at 60 years old. So we'll just start it with that. This is Gene Pope. Well, I'll never forget the time when uh, a gaggle of the uh, other students came over and they said, hey, Gene, how old are you? And I went, I'm just about to turn 60. And <laughs> it, was, it was worth every moment. Where it really started was, you know, all the way back in high school, where I was such a shy kid it's absolutely true. I used to take a pen, and if I had to call a girl, I would write what I wanted to say on my hand so that I didn't like go, eh, eh, you know, lock up. So that's how shy I was. And I sort of wobbled into acting in high school and realized this was a great way to become somebody else safely. So I could, I could become a different person person. But at the time, I was going to, you know, when I went to college, I was, I didn't think that acting would be the best thing for me at that point, because I got married very young, had responsibilities, had to get to work that was consistent, stuff like that. And there were plenty of other things I could do. So then fast forward, and I was taking my child, Roxy, I was taking them to um, a tryout here locally for a play that they wanted to be in. And uh, I met these two wonderful people there, who were looking at me saying, Gene, you, wait, you, you did this high school, right? I said, yeah. And they said, well, why aren't you trying out? I went, huh, this is literally now I'm in my 40s. I had directed before. I had done all these things before that was around acting. And I directed other actors. 
but I had never considered that I would actually go back to trying to get on stage again. And so I did. And so I sort of got permission from the family, asked them, I said, are you, are you okay if I like basically go back to college, which is what it was. And then of course the, the, the rest just happened. And so it ended up being in class and I, it just turned 60. But was there ever a party that's like, I'm too, too old for this. This is crazy. Uh, not until now, <laughs> in a certain way, because, you know, now I'm, I just turned 71, <laughs> and it's like, oh boy, and so things start to change uh, a little bit, you know, I may find myself going back into directing instead of just acting. I definitely favor people who have had training of some kind. You can see them come onto set and they just, they're ready. They're ready. They're completely ready. And each one has a slightly different process, but that's a, it's something that I really enjoy. So Queen of Knives, the same family. It's uh, King of Knives, came out, what, 2019? So we're talking two major films, full-length feature. The production quality is off the hook. What have you learned about making your own shit? <laughs> Well, uh, two things. One is tax deduction, and the other is the New York State uh, film incentive rebate. Between the two of them, you can put together a situation, assuming you have some income coming in anyway. You can set up a situation where eventually you're going to make a profit on the film no matter what. It just takes a bit of time. But so what? you know uh that's that's one way you can that's the way that you do this well how do those how do those actually operate there's two different things you can apply for one is with the federal government and it's basically the federal government will allow you in order to keep people shooting in the united states and not going elsewhere you can deduct the entire cost of your movie the first year and just carry it forward carry it forward carry it forward there's no limit to it so how far you can carry it until it's all you know uh, used up so basically you're increasing your your it's found money if you had didn't do this you wouldn't be getting that money anyway you'd be paying your taxes and that would be the end of it so you end up basically getting this money back which depending on your income can be a substantial amount of money and you just keep paying yourself back with that money and then the new york state one is literally they it's such a great incentive for them because it basically, you're spending this money and they're allowing you, they're giving you back uh, basically 25% of all your production costs. Just bang, after they process it, and it's a little bit of an arduous process, but once you get it done, basically it's like one day, bang, this amount comes back, this rebate comes back in a lump sum, just bang into your account. Well, there's your profit right there if you want to technically you know, be able to do another film or something like that. So it's kind of a, a repetitive cycle, you know, rinse and repeat. But that's basically how it works. Because it, and the advantage for them is that all the money that you're putting out there is, is being spent by the cast, the crew, all of that. So eventually, they're going to get their money. But there's it, it has attracted so much production to New York City, that they're getting much more tax revenue from all that production going on, you see? So it's, it's, and they saw how well it worked in other states. And they just agreed to increase it now. I think in a couple of years, it will be 30%. 
and they'll include post-production costs in it. Now, right now, it's just the shooting costs. And you could do it at any level. It doesn't have to be. It's low budget, high budget, doesn't matter. There are, there are companies out there that for not a lot of money will do it for you. Uh, and, it, it, and it makes sense because we tried it ourselves the first time and it literally, they kept rejecting it for a year and a half later <laughs> until we finally started, got it right. You know, every line was correct. Well, when you started to approach the idea of making King of Knives, okay, did you start with an idea? Did you start with just starting putting things to paper? Like, how did the whole process start for you? Process really started when Patrick Lillis cast me in a short play that was a trio of plays. It was there that I met Lindsay Joy, who was in one of the other plays as an actor, and Patrick Lillis himself. After thinking about this for a whole bunch of time, I said, you know, especially Lindsay, I read some of Lindsay's plays and I went, gosh, she can really write and she can really write dialogue. I mean, just... Uh, it's so untypical dialogue. It's, 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 you look at it and you say, oh, well, I haven't heard that used quite like that before, but hey, okay. And I just admire her ability to put the scene together. And so basically what I was saying to both Patrick and to Lindsay is, we should do a film. She's fearless. So it's like, hell yeah. We would go out to a restaurant. We would literally talk about what we could do for a movie. And then we started fleshing together this story and what the goal of the story was. And the goal of the story was, A, to show that two different generations are not that different than they think. They're more alike than different. Two, the humor of how outrageous life can be as you are growing older. And do it in a, in a humorous way, not making fun of it, Right? There's a big difference. When people go to see these movies, what, what you'll see is there's a few spots where the audience will laugh out loud all together at the same time. But it's not like a farce where everybody is always like the whole place is erupting. It's more like some people over here start to giggle. Some people over here start to giggle. You hear somebody else snort. Go, <laughs> yeah, okay. And it's because they are recognizing parts of the script that they can relate to. And that was what we, our goal was, was to create... First of all, I was determined that we're not going to allow <laughs> films to become either Marvel movies or horror movies or whatever. I want to make a Robert Altman film, you know? Interesting dialogue and twist it. Twist the hell out of it. And make it so that people are looking at something that isn't formulaic, but it's like they have to create a formula for it. And, and, and Queen and Knives especially is the, it has done that. I can't tell you how many people came up to me and said, you know, I, what I really enjoyed was that I, 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 these are people that did not see King of Knives because you don't have to. You really don't have to. It's an, it, it is, we, that was one of the tough parts was to create a movie that basically stands on its own. And you can, you can appreciate the arc. And then what happens is it makes King of Knives a prequel so you can watch Queen of Knives, and then if you want more information about the background, see the prequel. And then you'll also discover some little Easter eggs between, that shared, are shared between the two movies that are kind of humorous. But that's, that's basically what happened. So we, we, we closed out restaurant after restaurant after restaurant for, uh, I don't know, six months, a year? That's how long it took to really get a script that you felt was, well, we've got something. Oh, yeah. It was probably longer than that. It's all these constant questions of story flow 
that have to be looked at again and again and again. You know, would I pay to go see this movie? Do I care about the cast? Do I, do I care about the character? Do I care about this story? You know, then that kind of harsh light. And the difference between things I used to do 40 years ago versus today is that I'm learned how to become more self-aware of something like a script or a direction or what have you and, and say, okay, is this, are you being a little too cute with this? You know, come on, Gene, this is just a little too cute by, you know, few, few words there. Come on. Or it's like, nobody's going to buy that. How are you going to, or where's the, the continuity is falling apart with the, you know, for film now, I'm not saying for stage, but for film. Well, did the Meisner training help you with that in terms of, you know, circumstance, relationship, cause and effect, all that? A absolutely. When somebody asks me, it's like, oh, so what got you to this point? And I say, everything in my life, everything I've ever done in the past came to this. I didn't know it was going to come to this back then, which I often reflect on and say, how did I get here? And it's like, oh, it's because it was like a very complicated path, you know. Uh, you know, I was a recording engineer, so I was, I loved music and got in, you know, did tons of work on music. And then I, at one time I had a, a record label, indie record label that Napster destroyed, which was a lot of fun. And streaming now is threatening to do the same thing with film. And then it was uh, just different things, you know, then becoming a director, uh, having worked at a major ad agency, knowing how to sell, knowing what works, what doesn't work when you've got 30 seconds, and then going longer form. And it was just, and then doing short films myself, uh, both when I, as a director and then as an actor after Maggie's. If you want to succeed at any of this, and you want to do one of these things, make sure the people you hire are 10 times better at doing their job than you can. It's one thing to be the auteur, and there are definitely some great auteurs out there. But I guarantee you that when they're on set, they make sure they've got the best people to talk to them, to talk with and bounce ideas off of. You have to fail to succeed. I'll give you an example of a success, but that was a failure. After I left advertising, and then eventually I opened up my own production company, and um, again, was directing shorts and things like this. So I decided to go for broke. And I realized that I had, I had developed a method of being able to shoot on film, but edit on tape, and do special effects, which means that everything has to be pin registered. But film is hard to pin register. In the better film, ca film cameras, what happens is every time a piece of frame is a piece of film is moved and then the picture is taken, what it does is it's lifted up and then put on these prongs that hold it steady and flat. And it does this, 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 this 24 times a second. It's quite amazing when you think about it. But by doing that with the, the pin registration, it holds the image still so that it doesn't wiggle. However, there were two different kinds of systems. One was a two-pin register, which was Araflex cameras, okay? I'm going into ridiculous detail here, but you can look it up. King of everything was Panavision cameras because they used four-pin, full four-pin, which meant that the if you look at movies shot like Westerns and stuff like that, you know, anything back, they, back in the day that was shot on Araflex, you would get the jiggle, the film jiggle. It would always be moving around, and that's because of the only two pins. Four pins... It was a, st a very steady image, except that the projector would sometimes make it wiggles. But at least you had only one source. Now, but the four pins meant that each frame was absolutely locked. Now, 
Normally, if you would take that and put it into a film-to-tape transfer system back in the day, right, for editing purposes. The problem is that that process also let it jiggle for various reasons. So what I found a system to do, which was there was only one in existence in the United States on the West Coast, it was that it was a, a film-to-tape transfer system that once you corrected the color, what it did was it stepped the film through and pin-registered. It, but slowly, like one, two, three frames, four frames, it would take forever to do a scene. But what you ended up with was a, if it was shot with a Panavision, and if it used this film-to-tape transfer system, you had videotape where basically every layer of whatever you were trying to do is absolutely perfectly locked. So instead of having to do that all on film, which is ridiculously expensive and would cost a million dollars a commercial... It brought the cost down to like 100000 for a commercial to do these types of special effects, and that's what I wanted to do. So I created a demo film because I was also trying to attract some people maybe on the West Coast, on me as the director and stuff like this. So I made this short film that was called The Mad Ave Wizard, and it ended up winning the um, New York International Film Festival Grand Award as for Best Director. It made fun of advertising, and it was meant to demonstrate, A, what I could do, and B, but what I could do technically. So I was into all that high tech. That film was sort of a, a, a dead end. So, I, so, that was, so then I had to move on to other things, and, and eventually that's, that's how uh, Pope Music came about, was I decided to go back to my roots and, and do that. But you know what I'm trying to say here is that I encourage people... There's a lot of, I find a lot of people are worried today as to, well, I have this path and I have to take this path. And I would not be here today if I had not taken all these different turns and all these different things to find out what really uh, did I love to do of all these things. And some of them, I didn't know I wouldn't like doing them until I did them. And then two years later, it's like, I, I'm, I'm bored or whatever. I'm, I got to move on. I got to do something different. And- yeah, but I think all the all the past jobs and careers you've had just laid a foundation of information and knowledge and insight that I'm sure just helped you as a filmmaker, as an actor. As- uh, uh, there's no question. Uh, and 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 so I I I I I wanted to say for sure to everybody to to do not worry if you fail. And, and do not worry if you go in one direction and it's not the right direction. Don't be hard on yourself. Just simply back the truck up, go down another street, and it's not the end of the world. And you can do it. Yes, of course, if it's that age where you're having children and stuff like that, you may have to think about what you do and why you do it. And then as the kids get older, you go back to something that's a little more fanciful than what you want to do. And, that, that's, and that's what brought me eventually to, uh, to you guys. So... You get a script done. What's the process after you have a script? You've got to put a team together. You need a director. You need a crew. Here's the trick that I decided to do. And it happened purely by accident. When I was putting together King of Knives, I had a producer already in mind, Jen Gomez, who I had done short films with. So by the time we got to doing the feature, we were ready to do it. And I was ready to do it. But I was not going to direct and you know, I'm not Bradley Cooper. I can't do that. I'm sorry. It's just I need some sleep at night. And if you're directing, you're not sleeping. 
So if you're doing your job. So what happened was, is that I wanted to get a really good DP. And so I had, but I was looking for someone who was not in the business already, like deeply entrenched and wouldn't want to even come near something like this. So I had to try and amplify the, 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 the capability of what I could really afford. I ended up uh, interviewing John Delgado. Great director. My goodness. United 93 and uh, what did he do? Place Beyond the Pines. He's been a, uh, at times a DP, at times a gaffer, what have you, but a very knowledgeable one. And so what happened was he came into my apartment and I was, uh, and I, and I, and I was pitching him. I'm saying, oh, so, so John, you know, I, I'd love to have you as DP here. If you read the script, I see, yeah, I love the script. He says, but I got another idea for you. He says, how about if I direct? But the biggest thing that he brought was he was able to bring these level five IATSE people. And, and during the break between TV seasons, he said, hey, want to come work on my, my feature? I'm doing a feature. You want to come? And all these top people came and did the film for like no money, you know, level zero money. And it was, I was like, holy smokes, this worked out better than I thought. But that was part of the design was to have him bring better people in as sort of like, hey, you want to do this neat project as opposed to, well, what am I getting paid? Did, did you know when you were doing King of Knives that there was a second film? No. But what happened was by the time we, get, we got done with King of Knives, and then I saw how it was, and then, you know, Lindsay and I were talking, and, you know, COVID was shutting us down. And, 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 and so then we started talking about, you know, what would be a, a sequel? And, and that was the only thing I was talking to her about, really, was that, well, the sequel has to, as long as it stands on its own, it's very difficult to distribute a film that's being called a sequel to somebody else. Uh, because they don't want to be the sequel. And so this has to be a standalone film. And so that was how that got started. And that's how um, we spent, Jesus, almost two years on that script, on Queen of Knives. There was more writing work in Queen of Knives done, basically to redo scenes or cut them or different approach than in King of Knives by quite a big margin. It was, a, it was originally going to be, if you, if you looked at the script, it looked like almost a two-hour movie. Uh, there was a lot there. And so we shot 23 days for King of Knives. Queen of Knives, we ended up, we, we shot 20 days. Well, so just to give people an idea, what, what does it cost for a day? In King of Knives, a shoot day was about 100000 a day. No, it's no joke. There's a lot at stake. <laughs> So there was a lot of, ta you know, Tums and antacids and <laughs> Xanax or whatever, you know, it's like, uh, uh, it's, uh, th there's an enormous amount of stress. So it's like when you get into this part, again, I used to do movies where we did it non-union and it was just, the moment you step into Unionville, uh, it's, uh, especially in New York, you got to pay the piper. And so I've done low budget, I've done all of that, and it was time to step up to this, but it's just that the risks are so much higher. It's scary. Yeah, it's really scary. Did you have any lost days? Uh, oh, yes, actually. Um, one actor, unfortunately, uh, caught COVID, and it, was, uh, it just happened to be, of course it is, it just happened to be at a really, really bad time when we were about to get into the last week of the shooting. And so because of that, we had to offload all, and, and, and the rule was you have to wait 10 days. And then so then we had to add a Monday. 
the next Monday. The problem was no locations were available that Monday because it, now it's only a week away and we had to, we had to take all those scenes and put them at the end. So that day when it happened, when the news hit, Roxy and I were on set. Patrick and John came in and said, all right, we have to shoot your scene with Roxy tonight. And they turned day into night. I mean, night into day. And you can't tell. You think it's, it's amazing what they can do. But it was like, the two of us were like, I hadn't really looked at that part of the script last night. And we just found little gaps of time during the day and started hammering at it. And it ended up being a really cool scene. Well, so what's it like to work with Roxy? Roxy is your daughter in life. She's your daughter in both films. What's it like? Both Meisner trained. Roxy studied with Bill Esper. And that's probably why we could we could do it. Because, yeah, with Roxy and I, there's, there's no boundaries. We are very comfortable going into an area where, well, that's not how we would act at home, but this is what it is. And we had, we had done a couple of test shorts beforehand, uh, just the two of us. And in one of them, she was drugged out. I was trying to smack some sense into them. And, and so it was not a pretty picture, and we had to go to an area on purpose that we would never be uh, together. And that worked fine. And we just kind of... You know, you go to a two-year conservatory, and you the, 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 the thing that I will always remember from what I learned with you and with Maggie and everybody that all the classes, which really you, de- you need to do, a movement, boy, was that a revelation, was that you have to, you have to be able to um, be willing to just forget it. It doesn't matter. Just clear it out. Just clear it out. Don't even think of, don't, don't allow yourself to think about who it is you're working with. It may be imaginary circumstances, but it's real to us. And of course we've had clashes in the past. I mean, what child doesn't have some kind of clash with an adult? We're very comfortable with each other. I always have been. Well, what did you learn about auditioning being on the other side of the table as much as you've been? What I found was, uh, you know, it's it's funny. There was a, a, a Benadryl commercial I did many years ago, and the account executive called me up about five years ago or something like that and say, by the way, do you know who you were directing in that commercial we cast? I said, who? Brian Cranston. It was a very young Brian Cranston. But the point was that when I was in casting sessions back then as a director, I, I could just tell the, the people who were natural and the ones who were not natural. And uh, he just stood out from the crowd. It was as simple as that. It didn't matter. He was young, struggling like everybody else. And, uh, and it was like, uh, that's the person we need. And uh, he did a tremendous job on that shoot. And it's the same thing now. For me, I absolutely adore casting. Like, put me in that room. Because it's not just the performance. It's seeing the person. You know, just, hi. You know, not just staying in the background. You know, I don't, I don't try to interfere much or anything like that. However, here's, here's an interesting tale. In the first movie, the part, uh, Tail Rap Olsen uh, came in. He was reading for the character that Eric Kuhneman eventually did, which was the guy that runs away. 
Okay. So he was trying out for that. And I'm, and I'm looking at and listening to him read and seeing it. And I'm going, and, and then as he left, I turned around to Rachel Reese, the casting director. And I said, he would make a great boyfriend for Sadie, wouldn't he? And she says, yeah, if you want, you want, you want me to hug? And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. So <laughs> she ran out. Now, this is amazing. And this tells you about, talk about work ethic. Teo said, give me 15 minutes and I'll be back in. We gave him the long, the bigger part, right, to try. And it, it turns out that he's dyslexic. Only he didn't talk about, doesn't talk about that. So for him, committing to doing, to getting a script into his head in 15 minutes and having that issue is incredible to me. But he did it anyway. And he came back in and he read that thing and it was like, you, sir, are the embodiment of Sadie's boyfriend. <laughs> it's, and, and. But he initially came in and was reading for a completely different part. Yeah, different, a smaller part. And it was a different part. It was the guy that runs away, you know, from his, his, his bride to be. But then that opened it up for, uh, Eric Huneman to do the part, which he did brilliantly. But to me, it's like, that's some of my favorite stuff is putting the puzzle together of the actors. And everybody hit the ground running this time. It was wonderful to see the professionalism, the level of professionalism. Tara Westwood is, is a, I mean. Yeah. Well, this all goes back to relationships. And Tara actually came on the show um, a couple of seasons ago. Talk to me about relationships, because you you have a lot of them. And I tell students all the time that the majority of your success is going to be based on the people you know and the relationships you make. It's very true. What also happens is that when you do something successfully, word gets out. And so, um, yes, there's some people that will uh, blind contact you, you know, hey, I'm an actor, and I, well, I'm not doing anything right now, but when I do, and I've had instances where I've met people, and I said, you know what, I'm going to put them in the next casting session and see what they do. No promises, and I never offer promises, but I do say, hey, if you'd like to try out for this, I mean, um, that's kind of what happened with Tara, is that she came in for a reading, and she read for the part that she got, but she, uh, then to show you how strongly she, in a very good way, a smart way, goes after things, is that the character of Masha in the film, she wanted to try out for Masha. And so um, she went to the extent of graying her hair and then sending me a little clip. Now, you might say, well, that's not called for. And I go, no, no, that's, uh, hey. It wasn't like she was sitting there saying, can I please do this? No, she was giving me proof that she had an idea for this part. And what do I think? And I loved it. It was it was great what she did. It just ended up that Barbara Terrell came in. And I, like I said, I'm s- sitting in, in, in virtually in the back of the virtual room. And, and she starts doing her stuff. And I'm going, now that's an interpretation of the part I'd never thought of. But that would be great. And that's how it happens, you know? But I, I tend to be very flexible that way. I don't close my mind and say, it's got to be this person, it's got to be that person. Uh, you know, it, it ha- I, I would rather see what your imagination brings up and play counter, right? You, I mean, this is stuff that comes from the school. And it's like, you know, play, play, try playing counter to what you think this, this person is, or do something, you know, you'll ne- you're never going to be shouted down for doing an interpretation that is not correct. If they want, they'll correct you. 
if they think you look okay for the part, they're, they're not going to let you go without you giving you some direction anyway, or you get a call back. Um, but I think that it's the spontaneity and the spark is what, or lack of it, does that takes exp- a large percentage of the people that try out and it's like, meh. Like, for instance, here's a good example. Um, uh, in this movie, uh, Robert Costanzo, I was looking for this, uh, you know, a, a Bronx, Brooklyn, Italian guy to be running Sal's bar. And I wanted that stuff, right? Because Italian is in my blood. And so it was like two, two buddies, two goombas talking, right, at the bar. And the funny part was, well, first of all, you know, all the big shows that, you know, had Italian mobsters and stuff like this, that created a, a gap in who I could afford because all of them, rightfully so, are top-tier actors. And, you know, you can't, I can't even breathe in their general direction and be able to afford them. So they, they, the casting directors got me like a, the next generation of Italians. The problem was the next generation of Italians doesn't sound like the old generation. They're anglicized, right? And so, and so, and they weren't saying the word Casanova correctly. They wouldn't say it correctly. They kept saying Casanova. And it's like, now, no, 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 no. And they didn't have the attitude, you know, the attitude. And so all of a sudden we got it from, um, Bobby said, yeah, he'll send you a video. And he sends me a video. It's like, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so, and then I, so I spent the money to fly him out. And, you know, he's like, uh, I believe he's 80, uh, 80, 81 now. And so, I mean, and, and, and you look at his IMDB and he's got like six, seven jobs a year. You know, I mean, he's still busy. He's absolutely one of the nicest people you could possibly meet. But working with him was just a treat because he would, he, he came up and would start, he would do his process on the set. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to cut a lime over here. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to rearrange these bottles over here. And it's like, uh, hey, you got anything over there? I can, okay, give me that. And he said, he just did it himself, created his own thing. And uh, some of the funniest lines come out, come out of his mouth, but at least it, w- it was Casanova. Well, so now you, you finished the film, you've got this, this feature-length film, what's, what's the post-shooting responsibilities? You know, you're talking about getting into festivals and distribution, all these things you have to worry about? I'm pushing it harder than last time because uh, I think the film is getting more attention. So I'm giving it, a, I think we're, I think I applied to 35, 38 festivals. The way the world works, that kind of stuff, if you get, if you can, if your film is capable of getting some accolades there, it's, it's worth gold later on when people have to pay to see the movie. Uh, so it's, again, it's all about cheap marketing. And uh, so it's relatively cheap marketing. And you hope that your film can get into stuff like that. And it's fine. It's like, and I'm not, I'll be honest with you, I'm not, I don't have to be in Sundance. I I don't have to be a con. It's it's not necessary, and it's like it's kind of something that's I know enough about to know that it's kind of predetermined to a very large degree. Interesting fact: King and Ives took one year after it was done before we got one offer of distribution, and that was Gravitas. That's it. There was no, nobody else. With at the end of this movie, within two months, we had three offers on the table. And I can't say who it is yet because we're still 
the lawyers are doing their thing, but uh, I'm just I'm saying that it was three solid offers, and one in particular is very in touch with the way the world of distribution has changed uh, after COVID now. And they encourage discussion between the filmmaker and themselves. And we put it all out there and talk about how we're going to market it and stuff like this. And so that's, so that's being created as we talk now, you know? Well, all right. I, we've already talked an hour. This is crazy. I could talk to you for another hour. First off, congratulations. It's just, um, I'm, I'm just really proud of you. I just think you're an inspiration for anybody that might think, uh, you know, maybe it's just not right for me or I had a dream when I was young and I never pursued it, but you're like a real prime example of no, your path can take you anywhere and you just got to roll the dice on yourself and do it. And I just, I love, I just love everything about what you've accomplished. I'm curious. We'll wrap it up here. What's your advice to people that want to make their own shit? You know, a lot of actors out there that, you know, maybe have ideas in their head and they're rolling around and years go by and they never put pen to paper even to start. But what are some things to consider if you want to make something? You, um, you basically have to just find friends that are in the industry or trying to get into the industry it's all about contacts, but it doesn't have to be co- the contacts up here. It can be your contacts right here, right at your own level. You know, uh, go to film festivals, uh, I would suggest, because you're going to meet a lot of filmmakers there of all different levels. I think that's a great place. I mean, they have mixers and everything, you know, there, and you get to meet a lot of interesting people. And you never know how you're going to connect. I, I think it's a good idea to have a plan. Whether it's a, 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 you get to a, a script writer or you do a script yourself, no matter what, it's, it's, it's a start. You have to start somewhere. You have to expect that it's not going to happen right away. It doesn't. It just doesn't. There's all kinds of mistakes. But these mistakes are what make you really good later. There's nothing more important than making a mistake to become really good. And I don't I don't think there's anybody that just came out of the gate and they were perfect. It's just I don't think so. Well, my fellow daydreamers, thank you for sticking around and keeping that phone in your pocket. Please go to kingofknivesthemovie.com. You can stream King of Knives on Amazon TV or Apple TV. You can go to iTunes and leave a review of the show. That would be fantastic. Share it with your friends. You can go to creatingbehaviorpodcast.com. Go to the contact page. Hit that red button. I use SpeakPipe. Leave me a message. Ask me a question. Share some of your thoughts. You can also go to MaggieFlanaganStudio.com if you are interested in seriously training yourself as a professional actor in New York City. And you can follow me on Instagram at MaggieFlanaganStudio at CreatingBehavior. Lawrence Trailer, thank you for the song, my man. My friends, there's nothing more important than making a fucking mistake. So you keep playing full out with yourself. Stay resilient and don't ever settle for your second best. My name is Charlie Sandlin. Peace.